Hey, everybody, it's Ryan Ripley. Wanted to get a new offering in front of you as soon as possible, evidence-based leadership. And so, as you all know, Todd Miller, myself, and Will Seeley, we're big on evidence-based management. We want to apply it to the leadership space. We all know that modern managers face complex challenges every day. You're juggling a lot of needs, your direct reports, your stakeholders, your customers, they all need constant attention. What we want to do is help you manage that. We want you to use information and data to make good decisions around all of these areas so that we're delivering the right thing at the right time for the right customer. And we know that we're doing that because we're using data and evidence to validate all the things that we're doing. And not only that, we're not just looking at value, but we're looking at our capabilities as an organization. Can we deliver on time? Can we innovate effectively? Do we have too much tech debt? Do we have too many things in process? Are we unable to deliver when the market demands that we do? We look at all of these things with evidence-based management. We merge that into a leadership uh, mindset and lens, and we enable you to make new and better decisions repeatedly based off of the data that you're collecting within your organization. It's exciting stuff. We hope you can join us. Visit agileforhumans.com forward slash EBL course. Join us in one of these offerings. We think you're going to love it. Hope you can join us. Use Agile for Humans, the number four to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. You're listening to Agile for Humans with Ryan Ripley. Learn more at ryanripley.com. Hello, listeners. Ryan Ripley here. Just wanted to let you know, coming up in May, actually on May 10th and 11th, I'm going to be at Project Con in Indianapolis. Really awesome event. ProjectConEvent.com is the website we got Dave West from Scrum.org, keynoting. I'll be there. I'll have a coach's booth, a huge setup for you to come and meet and greet and say hello to me and many of past uh, guests on the show. Brian Lockhart, Natalie Warner, Jessica Soroki, Jesse Fuel, Ben Copel. Let's see, who else? Ben Day, fellow PST and trainer, uh, Nabila Saftar. ton of great talks, really awesome location and venue. Project Con, May 10th and 11th. Check it out. Uh, I think you're really going to like it. Indianapolis is wonderful that time of year. I hope to see you there. Uh, you know what? Let's jump into the show now. Kent Beck joined me. Had a blast. Let me know how what you think in the in the show notes. Leave me a comment. Leave me a tweet. Welcome to Agile for Humans. Our goal is to bring humanity back into the world of software delivery with agile values, principles, and practices. We gather top agilists from around the globe to share insights and help you grow as servant leaders in your organizations. We seek to open minds, change hearts, and deliver value into the world. Now here is our host, professional scrum trainer and agile practitioner, Ryan Ripley. All right, welcome to this week's episode of Agile for Humans. I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. I'm not even going to mess around with a crazy intro. We're just going to get right to it. Joining me this week is Kent Beck. Kent, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Am I the designated human today? You are the designated human in the uh, in the hot seat. Oh, excellent. Yeah, so many of the listeners will know, um, and I've told this story a few times on the show already, I actually got into programming because of Kent. It's Kent's fault. And I, I'm, I'm sure he's sitting there wondering, why is it my fault? Um, I read a book, and y'all might have heard of this book, Extreme Programming Explained. I read this book a number of years ago. I've actually got the second edition sitting on my desk right now. That book opened up the world of programming to me. It actually, the human side of things, the principles and values that go into um, the practices, um, it just had a massive influence. So Kent, first and foremost, thank you for a career. I've enjoyed it. <laughs> um, Good. But secondly, Me this too. book, just an awesome impact. And I'm curious, because, um, I mean, this book came out a number of years ago, a lot of amazing ideas. <laughs> a number, a large number, yes. Very large number. A lot of great ideas in it that we're still seeing companies trying to uh, adapt and inspect and, and, and adopt, hopefully, eventually. Um, what are some of the ideas? Avoid. That... There's another A word, avoid. <laughs> avoid. <laughs> yes. Man, I'm feeling it today. I hope you're ready. Are you buckled in, Ryan? I'm buckled in. Excellent. So those were the ideas then. I still think they're amazing ideas now. Are you still sharpening these ideas? Or what is really, what's on your mind these days? Where is your focus at? 
I really have two uh, two areas of active thinking slash research right at now. Um, one is how uh, the development process, software development process and product development process more broadly changes as the risk profile of a project changes. So in the early days when you're looking for a, a new reinforcing loop where where the bigger you grow, the easier it is to grow bigger. That's the profit. That's that's the gold, uh, the vein of, of gold ore in, in the software world is one of these uh, reinforcing loops. As you're searching for a new one of those, you want to try to uh, you want a lot of diversity. You want to try crazy ideas. The latency between, hmm, here's an idea and, oh, that's how users behave should be as short as possible. But that kind of behavior is completely different than the kind of behavior that you should exhibit when you have one of those loops. You've found one. You've you've uh, developed it. Now you have a thriving business. All of a sudden, you've got a lot to lose, and the behavior should shift dramatically. So something like extreme programming, which purports to say, well, here's at least a starting point for mm, all of software development, uh, misses this distinction. And so I call this 3X for explore, expand, extract. Uh, and the, the expand in the middle is, is when you're going through vertical growth. That is, again, its own discipline of engineering, discipline of of project management, discipline of finance, of people management, of staffing, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one big area is um, about five years into my tenure at, uh, at Facebook, I noted that these projects were treated very differently at Facebook and to, to a much greater degree than any other play, uh, large, especially a large organization that I'd ever seen where explore projects were handled one way and extract projects were handled another. And then there were these vertical growth that required kind of emergency intervention that was its own way of, of working and, and being. So that, that's one area um, that I'm working on. Another area, more geeky, technical kind of area, is about scaling software development collaboration. Again, um, inspired by my time at Facebook, I could see it's a big organization. It's getting bigger. It's getting harder to collaborate on development. What would it take for 100,000 people to work on the same system at the same time? And the one thing that everybody agrees on is that smaller changes are better, but the changes can't get too small because you've got this whole, whole uh, blocking asynchronous code review process going on. So uh, as is my way, I thought, well, let's just take this to the extreme. What if you drop the cost of introducing a change to zero? How small would the changes then be? And so the, the project's called Limbo because the Limbo song asks, how low can you go? And uh, we want to, uh, so it's an exploration for how small you could make changes and how quickly you could propagate them. Um, and then finding out, well, what does that do to the social organization of software development when you have this uh, essentially zero cost? Zero overhead, sorry, change um, um, mechanism. What does that look like? Technically, what does it look like? Socially, what does it look like? How does it change project management, finance, forecasting, da da blah blah blah, all that other stuff. So those are those are two big areas of research. Like the, the there's a lot of unsolved problems. And then a third thing, uh, I'm I'm going to start a full time gig here in a couple of weeks, and I had a, a couple of unexpected weeks free, so I decided I'm just going to see how much of a book on software design I can write in two weeks. So that's my mornings is uh, just busting it, writing as much as I can, um, 
turns out I have strong opinions. I realize that's going to be a shock to you and the listeners <laughs> about software design. And um, I have a, a, have always had a hard time explaining myself. Uh, I, spe- I have some specialized vocabulary and I bring an odd collection of thinking tools to how I think about software design. So I'm seeing if I can write a book in two weeks. A book in two weeks sounds awesome. Uh, let's start with explore, expand, extract. Like this, I really like the mining analogy that you're going with here because I there's a show on TV. I don't know if you've watched this before called Gold Rush, and this this is my mm-hmm. guilty pleasure, right? Oh yeah. And so they they just pull a bunch of gold out of the ground. They they do a bunch of digging. They they wash the rocks. They extract the gold, and they're always trying to expand their empires. And I'm thinking about product development in the similar vein and. And what I've seen in many of the, the, the Fortune 500 companies that I've worked in is that once they find that initial vein, that initial um, cash cow, that initial, and let's stick with mining, they find that ore streak, right? They put big fences around it and defend it like crazy and stop looking for anything else. Yep. And so we have this mentality of protect instead of explore and expand, right? Well, I think it's worse than that. I think that they forget what it took to find that in the first place. Because because those extractors, those are the people that look like responsible adults, right? They have projects. They can analyze the costs and benefits before they start. Things go pretty much on time, like certainly related uh, in comparison to these explore projects, which are just failing left and right. And and if they achieve something, they achieve something that was completely unpredictable. Like who wants that in a company? So companies get really good at extracting and they forget exploration entirely. Yeah, I wonder if exploration, though, I wonder if that's such a scary word. I think about I mean, even, you know, you've brought up Facebook a few times that was initially a, a need at a college, right? Or it, it was more of a yep. want, but it was scratching an itch, literally, yep. right? I wonder if we've forgotten that that's where most of product innovation comes from, living in the world, noticing things in the world, and seeing things a little differently and trying to, to solve a real problem. And uh, that's not as chaotic, perhaps, as we make it out to be. Well, it's chaotic for me. I mean, the 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 approach, the the mindset like, oh, I'm just going to I'm going to go around the world being tuned to unmet needs. I think that you're right. That is not chaotic. That's just a habit of thinking. Right. But many more people seem to have the habit of thinking, well, whatever my unmet needs are in the world, I'm just going to have to learn how to adapt to it. It's like the quote about how all progress depends on unreasonable people. Uh, I, I think that's very true. And then trying to um, channel those unreasonable people in positive ways can also be an interesting challenge. Well, yeah, it's it, a channel like you can't manage that in the in a some sort of linear sense. And do you think that's really the issue? This because uh, I whether you're adopting agile, you're doing scrum, you're doing XP, you're doing product research or development, I wonder if it's this illusion of control, this desire for predictability, this um, nothing's, nothing bad can happen mentality. Is this really what's costing companies this competitive edge or this ability to, um, this ability to actually explore, right? Well, I, I think there's a legitimate concern, which is if, if you're going to manage projects in all three phases at the same time, the task of management becomes more complicated. Like a guarantee, you can't just apply OKRs to everything. <laughs> right. Um, like I, I talked to one uh, one manager at Facebook who was who was uh, exploring new ads, and he was really frustrated with the with the OKR because either he had zero revenue or he had a hundred times his goal. And and exploration, it really, you're looking for thumbs up, thumbs down. Is this one of the things that's going to blow up in some unpredictable way? Or is it just one of the many things which sounded like a good idea until we did it? <laughs> and 
you have to be prepared for lots and lots of, oh, no, that's not going to work out. Oh, no, that's not going to work out. Boom. Oh, what about this one? So like I use Twitter for this. If I'm if I'm if I want to know uh, what of the things I talk about that the that my audience on Twitter wants to hear me talk about, I could carefully craft the the messages and and do little focus groups and and uh, have an editor go over. You know what? When the the difference in the number of, of uh, impressions of a tweet for me is 30 to one from from my sort of normal tweet to something that's the most popular one that I've ever put out there, 30 to one. And at the moment that I press tweet, and thank you, Twitter, for giving me the opportunity to press a button called tweet multiple times a day. <laughs> at the moment that I press that button, I have no idea if this is gonna be a one X or a 30 X. I cannot predict. If I try to predict, I'm just wrong all the time. The the big the the most popular tweets are not something I would have expected. So if I'm in that mode, my best if I'm in that world where I can't predict, then my best investment strategy is just as long as a tweet is not patently stupid or offensive, I should just put it out there because I don't know if this is going to be one of the ones that's that has an impact or or if it's one of the many that that seems to vanish. So do you think we have to have the misses to hit the home runs? I think it's worse than that. I think the more misses you have, the larger the magnitude of the home run. In baseball, you can only get one run or four out of a home run. Uh, and no matter how many games of baseball you play, but in the in the world of uh, of these reinforcing loops where you have a power law distribution, right. the longer you play baseball, the more runs you get from your biggest home run. That's so true. after 10 years, after a year, maybe you only get four runs, but after 10 years, you get 40 runs. And after 100 years of playing baseball, you'd get uh, 400 runs for a home run. Right. We don't we don't usually live in a world that's like that or we're not aware that we're living in a world that's that has these kind of positive feedback loops in it. But that's the way products work, you know, and, and that's very foreign to like if you're making your analogies from sports. Yeah. And so it's probably a poor analogy. But the idea there is so companies that want that competitive advantage, and I'm assuming Facebook is doing this pretty frequently, is you want to learn and miss fairly often so you have that amplifying effect or that possibility. Um, you know, you hit the, you, you find the winner, you get the thumbs up, you get the like. I mean, that can amplify out for, for years and years. So really, um, I guess maybe fail fast is the answer. Well, I think we need a different word than fail. I've always liked learn. What do you think of that? Well, so so you try this experiment and it either validates your hypothesis or it invalidates your hypothesis. So I wonder you, you I'm sorry. You see where I'm going with this? Oh, absolutely. And so so what is that word? We we can't call it a failed experiment. It's only failed if you don't learn anything. Right. If we if we say, well, uh, how will uh, millennial San Franciscans act when when given the opportunity to do X? Like, well, I think 10 percent of them are going to give us a thousand dollars there. Now we have a hypothesis. We run an experiment. The answer is no, they won't do that. That's not a failed experiment. That's a successful experiment. I mean, we'd rather have the thousand dollars, <laughs> right? But you know, because after all, that is the point. And and at some point, we have to get the thousand dollars, or we're out of business. But it doesn't make it a failed experiment. So I think we. I, and I don't have an answer to this. I don't know what that word is for. Uh, 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 we got the answer, and it wasn't the one we hoped for. I perhaps that's just serendipity. Because it's, I mean, if you're running an experiment and you know the outcome, it's no longer an experiment, right? Yeah, exactly. 
So, I mean, you it's, are, it's complexity. At, it's just. At, at which point it's, it's, you're, you shouldn't run it. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Cause, cause either you're already doing it or somebody else is already doing it. So it's not worth it. If you, if you don't know, if it's a coin flip, right? The maximum information is generated when your experiment is a coin flip. You know, I've always wondered how much of this product discovery stuff is accidental. You know, someone put a weird idea out there by accident. Someone forgot to carry the one. Someone misconfigured an ad type and it, it worked. I mean, have you seen things like that where completely accidental, but holy cow. I, I think the Post-it note is a good example of this, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like it was, a, it was, a, it's supposed to be adhesive. It's supposed to stick to things. And this goop doesn't stick to anything. <laughs> no. So if, yeah. if that's what's going on in our product development, um, it seems like rapid experimentation, shortest feedback loop possible, um, wide spectrum and diversity of ideas. Uh, Kent, this does not sound like the common corporation or company that I walk into. Well, that's because they also have to take all the gold they can out of the veins they do find. Right. Right. That's a that's a, a, a if you don't do that, then the lights go off and then you don't get to keep exploring. So I think there are there are three different disciplines at work here. That's that's the the mind changer for me in 3X, that there isn't management, there isn't development, there isn't programming. There are three different kinds. So another another illustration that I use is is uh, I take a bag and in the bag are a, a soccer ball, an American football, and a rugby ball. And and if if the person wearing the black and white striped shirt blows a whistle and takes the the soccer ball off the field and puts a rugby ball down and a and a new team opposing team comes trotting onto the field if you keep playing soccer. And the game has changed to rugby. You're gonna get crushed. It's not bad soccer. It's just a different game with different rules and different trade-offs. That's in the same way that uh, expansion is not bad exploration because you're focused on one existential threat at a time. It's just a new game. You entered a new phase, and and uh, extraction isn't bad exploration, or vice versa. They're just different games. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, well, and then the type of ball dictates the game, right? What if you tried to play uh, soccer with a rugby ball? <laughs> yep. <laughs> it, 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 and it's worse than that because the opposing team has changed too. <laughs> More complexity. So, so you have large, aggressive people tackling you. Well, hey, wait a minute. That's not how soccer is played. That's well, right. Rugby is large, insane people tackling you. You forgot that part. <laughs> but many listeners, including Todd Miller, who's out there listening, is a huge rugby fan, and, and I'm sure he'll forgive me for that. It's, oh, good. It's, it's a fascinating... Yeah, you, you better hope he will. Well, because, yeah, he's one of those large rugbyers. Um, it is a, this, it's this fascinating area, right? And I think it's one that... Um, I think this product development area is really going to become, you know, maybe it's the post-agile thing, maybe it's the new, fo I just think it's that, that shifting the, the focus to the customer. What does this customer truly want? How do we know that they truly want that? Have we validated that what we built is truly what they wanted? And what are all the measures and ways to manage that? And I, but I like this idea of you know, looking for minerals because I, we don't know where things are at. We can do drill testing, we can, um, you know, run run soil samples from from thousands of different areas even though something that looks positive it may turn out it was just a small vein it wasn't a large vein but then you get into let's say we actually find you know we we get to this this area of we have found value right we have figured out that a new ad configuration looks good we figured out that um you know changing the algorithm and you know deprioritizing certain types of pages made the users happier whatever it is that we're doing on a platform what does that expand step look like, Kent? Well, and this is uh, derived from 
coaching a couple hundred Facebook engineers, uh, whenever you find a new source of value, it doesn't matter how good your infrastructure is, you're going to break it. Um, all of a sudden you're running out of, and it's one thing after another, you're running out of disk space and then you're running out of network bandwidth and then you're running out of, uh, of, uh, server floor space and then you're running out of office space and then you can't recruit fast enough. And then, and then, and then, and then, (laughs) and the thing about that expansion phase is every single one of those barriers that you hit is an existential crisis. So if you don't find some way to bandage, band-aid your way around it, then you didn't win in the first place. So uh, expansion, so exploration, you're just trying a bunch of stuff. You're trying goofy stuff. Sometimes you're trying irrational stuff just because who knows? It's cheap may as well. And then something takes off. And when it takes off, it is, per definition, going to be a use of your resources you haven't seen before. So n- now you have to be, first, you have to become aware of what that new rate-limiting resource is. And then you have to find some way to reduce the demand for that resource and increase the supply just enough so that it doesn't kill you and get ready for the next one. So... Um, you know, now more photos are being uploaded and then you run out of disk space. And then, so you solve that problem and then the, the bandwidth isn't high enough and you solve that problem and another thing and another thing, but that requires extreme focus. You have, you have one metric that if it isn't addressed is going to kill you and you address that and then you find the next metric that's going to kill you if it's not addressed which is very different than the exploration behavior where you want to keep doing goofy stuff until something pops unexpectedly. Does that answer your question? Oh yeah. I I think it it reminds me uh, of Jerry Weinberg and uh, Rudy's rutabaga problem where um, uh, you solve your biggest problem and congratulations, your second biggest problem gets a promotion to the first and it will hit you just as hard as the, the one you just solved did. And like it, whoever, whoever wants to be the Guinness Book of World's Records oldest person, that person keeps dying. <laughs> exactly. It's you know, and then oh, you know, I'm number three on the list. I'm number two. Oh, I'm this is it. I'm happy to lose that one. <laughs> exactly. So it, it's interesting, right? The the explore, the expand. It reminds me of a tweet you fired off because I actually I keep an eye on your feed from from time to time. And I, oh, thank you. I, I really enjoyed, and if the listeners out there, if you're not following Kent, what are you doing? Um, but you fired one off that by the time you being make a productive, big, being productive, yes, social media. <laughs> Sorry, bad. I oh, was that one of those rhetorical questions I've heard about? No, 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 you're good. I, I agree with you. I have less social media, more work. But, um, but by the time you make a big bet, it better not be a bet. And I thought that was really clever. Um, because we're always talking about big bets in these in these meetings and in these companies, but man, by the time you put the chips down, you better not be gambling, right? Well, I mean, there there are degenerate gamblers. I'm a, a, a avid amateur poker player. There are people who do it and who do losing plays over and over again because they enjoy it. On those rare occasions, they win. So that's fine behavior. It's just not a way to run a business. Absolutely. So extract. I think there's something there's something macho about that. Oh, I'm going to make a big bet. Like, no, you shouldn't. You should you should wait until it's an absolute certainty and then pour the money on it. Well, it, it, most people don't even realize you brought up poker that most of the time when we're playing poker, unless there's been a little too much alcohol, we're not actually gambling. It's, Correct. It's all math. I were looking at um, different ranges of hands versus what's on the board based on betting behavior, best based on past behavior. We're making some logical inferences, some guessing, some bet or some some. Um, we're creating some models in our head, and we're saying, "Oh, I've got a one percent edge here. I should I should put some money in the pot." Or it's likely that my range is going to fall flat into his range, and he's got me beat, and I'm drawing dead. I should quit. And it's, but it's not a gamble. 
there's so much information. It's right. it's imperfect and it's incomplete, but it's really not gambling at, at a certain level of, of play, right? Well, if you go if you go long enough, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, over time, the variance is what I guess the variance is what gets everybody in the end, right? Well, um, no, no variance gets you today. In the end, it doesn't. In the in the end, it all balances out. <laughs> we would hope. Well, uh, unless you run like I do, and then you have to stop playing for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I I just finished one of those uh, one of those uh, enforced hiatuses. Very nice. So another tweet that I wanted to throw at you real quick. I thought um, Cat Sweatle put something out that I really liked that XP is not dead. It's just not where you left it. (laughs) Such an amazing tweet, right? And we've been actually talking about this on the agile for humans Slack channel. Um, A lot of people. So I, so Kent, you've actually um, busted my chops a little bit for being a scrum trainer in front of a lot of people (laughs) in Johannesburg, South Africa live. Yes. Yeah. It was a, what was it? The, the, the scourge of certifications? No, 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 no. The scourge is the is your minimization. I I said, how will we eliminate the cancer of certifications? Ah, uh, yes. And and I, I, I think I, I stammered like this for a little bit and then went on. But um. <laughs> no. So so here's the thing about certifications. Since you brought it up, and we should get get back to Cat Suite because that was extremely clever and insightful. But the thing about certification, I'm not anti-certification. I am pro-incentive alignment. Yes. And what I see is there are, there are ways of doing certification where everybody's incentives are aligned. Uh, board-certified physicians, for example. It, it really means something. The people doing the certification don't get paid for it. It's a, it's a professional obligation. Um, uh, so if somebody says I'm a board certified surgeon, they, oh, I'm going to trust you at a different level because the incentives are closer, closer to aligned. Now, if you go back to Hammurabi and the, you know, if the house falls down, the builders and your child is killed, then one of the builders children is put to death. That, that even takes it another level. I, I don't need to actually go to that level, but that is a case of severely aligned incentives. The, the ones that I don't like is when the incentives are diametrically opposed. What, what would be good for one party in a transaction would be actively bad for the other. And some ways of doing certification are, are set up that way. No, I, End of rant. No, totally. I think that's a, that's a great stance on it. I, I would totally, I do totally agree. I, to Kat's comment, and, and I thought, again, super clever tweet. It came up in the channel where one of our, our listeners, uh, Mark, Marcus, he asked, um, when you think about Scrum and XP and SAFE and all of those things, do you think XP didn't get the traction because it didn't have a certification? Or is that even a fair statement that it didn't get the traction that the others did? Well, I mean, it lost it. It lost in the in the marketplace of ideas. Uh, depending on how you keep score, um, but as a thing, so <laughs> uh, it certainly didn't lose because uh, we didn't have certifications. We that was a very conscious choice, very deliberate, kind of over my dead body. I took that stand because I didn't, I couldn't see how to do certifications in a way that aligned everybody's incentives. Uh, I think Scrum was very successful because it was, um, it had a better marketing plan than extreme programming. Um, I think that uh, the the larger scale. Uh, uh, advice around software development, whether it's safe or less or, or whatever. I think they also chose, uh, you know, they're speaking to CTOs. Uh, you know, the, the XP was talking to teams. Uh, 
I gave a um, I gave a back in the in the the like go go days of extreme programming. I gave a um, keynote in uh, Tokyo at the some anniversary of one of the largest IT publications in in Japan. And afterwards, uh, it seemed to go flat for me, even for Japan, like just not a lot of of reaction. And I asked somebody who uncomfortably told me that I was talking about 10 or 20 people working together and no one in the room had fewer than a thousand people reporting to them. So what, what was the, like, what, what message did I have that they could take away? And I had to think, I don't think I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what they could take away from from what I said. So I think um, that limited things. And then I think there were there were a couple of moments. A very large electronics manufacturer came to a group of us that were doing XP training early on. And they had four or five people at this training. By the end of the week, they sat us down and said, okay. Uh, it's a go. We would like training for 10,000. Wow. And uh, and we stood on our principles and said, by gum, we don't know how to teach 10,000 people. So we're not going to, we're, you know, with integrity, we can't possibly meet this need. And that was the end. So th- th- there's an element of luck if we had had a way to scale it like that. You know, and and our, our answer wasn't strictly factual, right? Could we have if, – if if somebody had really – like if we hadn't panicked in that moment and said, all right, all right, let's just assume we're going to do this. How can we do this the best we can? It's not going to be as good as if we've got eight really high-level instructors in one room, but – it can be something, right? So how quickly can we reach how many people with decent training? We could have come up with something. Instead, we panicked. And a moment like that can make all the difference. Yeah, I mean, I can see how... I mean, that's really the expand, right? I think I still believe... Yes, X- yes exactly right. XP is a goal, is, is, a, is a vein, and it's a very wide one. I've yet to meet a developer, even today. Like when I when I manage or when I used to manage, I'm now out of that, um, off that treadmill for a while. Um, but when I would manage developers or or even work as a scrum master with dev teams, uh, when I fall into that role from time to time, I everyone gets a copy of that book. Everyone gets extreme programming explained, and I've yet to meet a dev who. Once they read it, you now sometimes you have to convince them that yes, it's worth reading because you know when a manager or a scrum master hands them a book, they think it's touchy feely and, and not valuable. Um, but once they read it, I've yet to meet a developer who's looked at it and said, "Nah." I mean, it's th- they love this book, and so I think what you're talking about is that expand phase. What can you extract from that that particular experience of, and what could fall forward? You know, because I. I mean, selfishly, Kent, I mean, I'll cut to the chase. I, I, my question is, when does the third edition come out and when does it resurge, you know? Yep. Well, I, I think we, I think to Kat's point, there, it's been a, a, a big surprise to me. Uh, okay, so here's the part that wasn't a surprise. There are people out there who've kind of been doing XP underground some of them for the last 20 years, some of them for 10 years, some of them for five years. You know, they found a copy of the book on their parents' bookshelf and and read it and just thought, well, why don't I try this? And and they're really good at it. And, and to Kat's point, some of the new people are doing things in ways that we, we old folks didn't anticipate back then. But it's better in the sense that it's more shaped to the cultural zeitgeist. It's more shaped to the, the technical constraints of projects today. 
So I knew that there were, there were both, um, newer and more experienced practitioners who wanted to get the word out. The, The big surprise for me over the past, maybe six months is on the demand side. Um, I gave a, a talk at a big telco in, in China, and I wanted to talk about 3X and the stuff I was really excited about. And they said, actually, would you mind going over that extreme programming stuff one more time? And it just <laughs> blew me away. I was I was going into rants that I hadn't ranted in 15 years, you know, about managing projects with variable scope and 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 whatever – there's there's demand there there are are people out there who are now saying well okay we liked the promise of agile xp sounded like it was going to be a lot of work so we just had stand up meetings for the last 10 years and that's not working out would you please tell us about that xp stuff again so i think there is an opportunity for a reboot of of extreme programming it's not going to look the same way uh, the way it's expressed is not going to be the same. Uh, some of the people involved are not going to be the same people. Some some are. Um, like yeah, how the word gets out there. I think there is an opportunity to uh, reboot the franchise, to kind of take another run at the fence and say, okay, okay. There really is a way – for software development to create much more value than it is creating today. That was the point from the beginning, right? I have this, I don't know if you've heard me go on this rant about 3 billion seconds in the, in the, uh, the Christian Bible, it talks about the man, the score, the score of a man. No, the tale of a man's life is uh, three score years and 10. So 70 years, that's a lifespan. Well, we live longer than that now. So I talk about 3 billion seconds, which is about 92 years, which is about how long younger people are going to live. Um, and those 3 billion seconds are ticking away. And the original motivation with XP is I just saw people wasting so many of those seconds doing stuff that just couldn't possibly matter. And that reality is still the reality today. And uh, like I have a hard time holding it together when I think about how many people are doing how much less than they could with the time they have here. And we have big problems. We, we need everybody with their talents working uh, at 100% if we're going to get through this. So, yeah, I think there is an opportunity out there to – Take those ideas to recast them in uh, the language of the moment and uh, propagate them in the style of the moment. And, yeah, I think that the, the, that could come back. Well, and I actually see um, Limbo, as you were talking through that, as kind of the next incarnation or at least that combined with you know, stuff on, you know, Woody Zool's work on mob programming or all these mm-hmm. other scaling collaborative, they're scaling collaboration um, and we're getting that cost of change or at least the overhead of change down to zero. I mean, that's absolutely fascinating. And I'm sure the people heard that at the top of the show and they thought, well, how would we even get to that point? And I know this is something else that you're excited about. When you think about you know, trying to, to scale collaboration, getting that, that overhead of change uh, down to zero. I mean, I don't think you're just talking about, you know, checking into master all the time and just uh, continuous integration and automation. I mean, there's something more to that, isn't it? Or isn't there? Well, well what, what more does there need to be? I mean, you have to do that in a way that just doesn't, that doesn't break stuff all the time. So is there? So what I what I loved about XP, a lot of your rants, a lot of your, I mean, even your keynote in South Africa that we got to see. You've also brought in um, the human element to the work, right? So we've 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 yeah. got the automation is there, uh, continuous integration is there. I agree, I agree, all that stuff's necessary, but you've also, I think, you brought principles, or at least a principled approach to software development. That's one of the things that really stood out in Extreme Programming Explained that. Um, 
you can do all of these practices, but they come rote unless there's principles and values behind them. What are the principles and values that we use as we're scaling collaboration so that we can go, so that we can get as, as low as we can go? Well, I think a, a big one, and this comes back to this incentive alignment, it, I think aligning authority and responsibility is, and keeping them aligned is this, the central organizational problem. It's just so easy for the people who can break things not to have to fix them. True. And it, the, like if, uh, I, yeah, I don't know how, how, how far I'm, I'm, in a, I'm willing to go at this point about that, but um, that's what I, I want to see that, okay, if you can break it, then, then you're responsible for fixing it. And then I think software, especially as we begin to have a world shaping consequences, single software systems now have a significant effect on world society, on climate, on safety, on commerce. We have to start learning from the safety cultures of, in the world, whether it's medicine, aeronautics, space, uh, transportation. There are people who've been thinking about how to take really complicated situations and wring every last bit of safety out of them for decades. And the uh, explorations only only can take place in in a in a uh, uh, atmosphere of safety. right You need for there to be not a lot to lose in order to explore freely. But that doesn't happen especially in a big organization that doesn't happen at random right if i'm if i'm trying out new products inside of a gigantic bank uh i need to do that in a way that isn't can't possibly in anyone's imagination affect the 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 regular operations of the bank now every once in a while we're going to be surprised say ooh i didn't know that the thing was connected with the other thing and you know, that that ended up being a big problem. But when that happens, uh, then you have to learn everything you can about that situation so that you can rectify the situation and make sure that something like that can't possibly happen again. One of the I don't know if you know Powell's books in Portland, Oregon. I do not. It's a uh, it's an entire city block It's the best bookstore in the world. Um, uh, in English for sure. Um, and I remember you've just run across crazy books. I found a book that detailed every fatal commercial aviation accident in the history of commercial aviation and what was learned from each accident. And, you know, it doesn't like, anyway, it was, I was just fascinated because, uh, you know, you don't put this switch next to that switch when accidentally flipping one when you mean to flip the other one means everyone dies. Like, who knew? Now we know that. Now we don't put those switches next to each other. Um, and it's things like that, that every every little niggling detail that creates safety in aviation is there because somebody died. And you can't prevent absolutely people from dying, but you can make sure that it doesn't happen twice. And uh, uh, yes, the, the, I'm gonna I'm gonna let go of the temptation to take a, a cheap shot at uh, local, uh, recent events. But as as software systems begin to have these global effects, we have to incorporate that kind of wisdom into what we do. At the same time, we have to continue exploring and trying out crazy ideas while the consequences, uh, potential negative consequences are low so that we like so that we can actually realize the potential of computing to contribute to, to human wellness. 
Kent, I think that's a great place for us to leave off on this conversation. Um, I think I know you've got a hard stop in a few minutes here, and I want to be respectful of your time. I, I've loved this. I really appreciate um, all you've done for the the software community. Um, this has been a true pleasure, and it's just been uh, it's great to have another conversation with you. This part of the show, Kent, it's all for you. Um, anything you'd like to promote, anything that you want to get in front of listeners, um, anything that, uh, and, and actually how people can continue the conversation, whether it's a Twitter handle, website, anything you'd like to share, uh, the floor is yours. Uh, on Twitter, you can find me at Kent Beck. One of the advantages of getting in early is you get your own name. <laughs> um, on the web, you can find me at kentbeck.com. Uh, not a lot of stuff up there at the moment, um, but uh, you can get on my mailing list. Um, this as yet unnamed software design uh, book um, that I can't even tell you where to follow it or anything, but look for that. Should be hitting a bookstore near you in the next uh, somewhere between two months and four years. And um, yeah, I, uh, th those are all ways you can you can get in touch with me. Well, Kent, again, thank you so much for doing this. Um, really, I I'm I'm going to put I found I have some links to the Explore, Expand, Extract. I think you've got some posts out there on that. Definitely, we'll share yep. that with the listeners. I find it fascinating to think about exploration, but also the safety of it and creating the safe environments. And uh, I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of great material to mine there. Uh, pun intended, maybe hashtag dad joke. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think it's awesome stuff, and I can't wait to see where this goes. So thank you again for sharing that, and thank you again for doing the show. Hey, my, my pleasure, Ryan. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation, and I uh, look forward to talking to you again sometime in the future. All right. Thanks, Kent. Hey, it's Ryan. If you're enjoying this show and want to take a deeper dive into Scrum with me and Todd, check out agileforhumans.com forward slash training. Be sure to also look at the show notes to subscribe to our newsletter, get a copy of our book, Fixing Your Scrum, and learn more about working with us at Agile for Humans. Thanks for listening, and scrum on!